All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. terrific and i'm really excited about this episode so hope everybody's doing well out there hope everybody's staying safe and thanks to everybody for the great feedback on our prior episodes we really appreciate that and look forward to putting out another great one here for you folks well we are still social distancing but that has given us great opportunities for interviews over the past few months and we've got another really awesome one this month glenn would you care to introduce our guest Yes, we are indeed pleased to be joined by Chairman Neil Chatterjee this afternoon. Of course, Neil is known to folks in the energy space as chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. He was appointed there in May of 2017, confirmed in the U.S. Senate in August of 2017, served as chairman until December of 2017. He then became chairman again in October of 2018. He's seen the agency from a couple different chairs, and before he was on the commission, he spent time on Capitol Hill working for the U.S. Senate, serving as advisor for Senator Mitch McConnell. Before that, he was with the National Rural Electric Cooperative. But most folks know him for his presence on Twitter, for his decisions at the agency. Chairman Chatterjee, welcome. Thank you for having me. I've been listening to the pod, and you guys do a really great job covering some pretty weedy issues. You make it entertaining, and I'm genuinely excited to be on today. I'm over here smiling. That's great to hear. We really appreciate having you as one of our regular listeners, and it's really exciting to finally have you on the show. I listen to you guys while I run, so you get me pumped up. <laughs> well, that's good to know. It's that theme music, right? It's in future episodes for you to keep you motivated. I appreciate that. Well, since we have you, Chairman, Glenn, unless you have any objection, I think we should just jump right in and start discussing. We obviously want to talk about some of the issues that are going on on the federal level, our focus with PJM, but rest assured, we will also get into some of the more entertaining discussion topics as Glenn referenced. Chairman, you have a very strong presence on Twitter, and we would love to parse through some of that feedback. And then also, it is well known, your sports allegiances, far be it from us being based here in Philadelphia, to not want to talk about sports. So we will certainly get into that as well. Well, let's just start here. We've got a long list of questions. Chairman, what was it like for you moving from Capitol Hill to FERC? So going from that very political side of Washington over into more of the administrative side. It was a pretty big transition, pretty steep learning curve, dramatically different environments, serving as a staffer, converting to principal, moving more from the legislative side to a quasi-judicial regulatory body, moving from having an office you know, feet from the rotunda to down the street over by Union Station, different neighborhood. And then, look, I spent the totality of my career working on energy and environment policy. I thought I knew a lot about energy policy, working it from the legislative side. It's a whole different arena coming to the commission. And so uh, it was a steep learning curve and a great challenge. But I have someone who has spent my career committed to public service, and it was an honor to work in the Senate, and similarly so here at FERC. You know, if you think about the training grounds for FERC commissioners, and they generally come from, like, 
two, maybe three places. One is obviously the Capitol Hill staffer route. When you think about Kelleher, Betsy Moeller, Phil Moeller, probably think missing a couple others that went that route, obviously yourself. The state commissioner route, House and Tony Clark, Colette Honorable, Mark Spitzer, Sudine Kelly. Again, I'm probably leaving a few off that list, but the state commission training ground is obviously, and then the FERC bar. Think about folks like Commissioner McNamee, Chairman McIntyre. Can you talk about just maybe the dynamics of how that plays out on the commission? Your tenure has been a little bit different. Well, I guess you overlap with Powelson as a state commissioner, but just talk about how those training grounds shape how commissioners view their jobs. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the great things about having a multi-member bipartisan commission is that you get a diverse array of experience and backgrounds. And so I think each of those forums that you described train people in different ways. I think state commissioners obviously are deep in regulatory processes, and I think they can sometimes hit the ground running a little bit quicker, the fact that they had that experience at the state level, but they then have to adjust their views to account for the entire country and not just the state from which they sat. I think FERC practitioners tend to be focused, have tremendous expertise in a specific area that they built their practice around, but then there's such a wide array of issues that fall to commissioners and their portfolios and responsibilities that those practitioners have to broaden their policy landscape when they come to the commission. I think coming from Capitol Hill, particularly coming from the Senate leadership, I had more of a national perspective. You know, I was constantly having to reconcile differences in policy viewpoints based on senators in different parts of the country. And so I had more of a national perspective, but trying to think through things and view them through a regulatory landscape and familiarize myself again with that wide array of issues from a regulatory standpoint, it was a transition. So I think having that mix is really quite useful. I did cross over with Commissioner Powelson during his tenure, and he provided a lot of great insights and views as to what the state perspective might be on an issue. Tony Clark is someone I worked very closely with. We actually identified Tony in my prior capacity. Senator McConnell was the one who put him forward for the seat on the commission. So I've had a long history with him, and and he's been a great guy for how things are viewed from the states. And my dear friend, the late Chairman McIntyre, was a fantastic resource for giving me the perspective of the energy bar, as is Commissioner Danley, who, of course, served as general counsel. So I think having that diversity of viewpoints and experience is very, very helpful. The one skill set that I hope I was able to bring to this is there's only two ways things get done in the United States Senate, by unanimous consent or exhaustion. And those negotiating skills, trying to broker deals, Most of the major pieces of legislation that I worked on didn't pass with 60 votes. They passed with 85, 90 plus votes. And I was hopeful that those skills I developed as a negotiator would translate well to the commission. And I'm hopeful that they have. You know, I never thought of exhaustion as a regulatory strategy, but you might be on it. It's a legislative strategy. Okay, well, probably can apply it on the regulatory landscape as well. Oh, I was just going to say it certainly occurs in, in the PJM stakeholder meetings. Everyone gets to a point where it's time for lunch or it's time to leave, and, and that's when decisions get made. Uh, so I certainly hear that. So when you came in, when you were there, you were named interim chairman. 
what impact did that have? Did, did it hold you back at all from enunciating your strategy or your plan for how to put your imprimatur on your service on the commission? Yeah, look, that was a really difficult period for many reasons. So, you know, I'm coming in, you know, with the excitement of taking on a new position. If you recall, the commission had gone a period of about seven months without a quorum. And when Commissioner Powelson and myself were finally sworn in and we restored the quorum, we were excited about you know hitting the ground running and starting to work through that backlog. I was tapped temporarily to serve as chair while we awaited Kevin McIntyre's confirmation. I joke around that he had been much more successful than me professionally as a two-decade-plus partner at a major international law firm. So his financials were far harder to unwind than mine as a broke Senate staffer. But I knew he was coming. And to be honest, I had fully expected to come in to get situated into the commission, to learn the process, the substance, the culture, and the mores, and to get through the backlog. And I think really the focus that fall was supposed to be on getting through this huge backlog that had accumulated during the loss of quorum period. And that's where I thought my attentions would be. And I think as I look back on how I navigated that transition to the commission, one of the things that I'm proudest of is that, you know, people thought it would take years to, or at least a lot longer than we did to get through that backlog. And we basically got caught up within that three, four month period that fall. And that would have been a significant accomplishment that a lot of people would have reflected positively upon, but it was totally overshadowed by the DOE NOPER. So, Put yourself in my shoes. I'm in a brand new job, brand new to the commission, trying to learn the job, trying to figure out where the bathrooms are, and I'm temporarily serving as chairman, and we get hit with this DOE NOPER on resilience, and here I'm trying to make this transition from partisan legislative aid to independent regulator. I've just spent the past decade of my career advocating on behalf of the Commonwealth of Kentucky and the industries in coal that support its economy. And I'm hit with this proposal from DOE. And look, I admit I was initially sympathetic to the issues that Secretary Perry had raised. Glenn, I think I heard you speak very eloquently on one of the earlier podcasts about what happens in these communities where there's a transition. And I had those similar views. Where I think I vomited all over myself was I recognized very quickly in talking to staff that the NOPER as constructed and sent over from DOE was not going to meet legal muster. It wouldn't be legally viable. But I hadn't fully made that transition from partisan legislative aid to independent regulator. And even though ultimately I voted against the NOPER, I didn't appreciate early on how much my words matter, particularly when I had that interim chairman title. People were paying very close attention to what I was saying, and it took that experience for me to recognize that words matter and that you have to be careful with your words. And even though I ultimately voted the legally prudent way, the way that I handled it up until then, that was a difficult learning experience for me, further complicated by the fact that there was a lot of mystery and intrigue going around the commission at the time because 
there was uncertainty around when Chairman McIntyre would be sworn in. And I was in this difficult position that because he was my friend, I was aware of what he was going through, but wasn't willing to publicly talk about it. And so I had to sit there while on top of this complicated policy fight, my friend is going through this personal battle and I'm having to process all of this simultaneously. It was a really, really challenging period. Yeah, I can only imagine. And I mean, I think one thing that folks maybe don't necessarily appreciate unless you've actually been in the commission, the responsibility that comes with the chairmanship versus being a commissioner. And you've had the fortune, I guess, I would consider a fortune to be able to view the agency from both chairs. I mean, I had an interim chair in the the middle, so you get three different views. So, but the buck stops at the chairman's office and you're the one getting the calls from the Hill. You're the one being a spokesperson for the agency. To your point, you know, people are watching your words carefully. I'll never get it. It was like my, I think it was my third or fourth day, you know, as chairman of the Pennsylvania commission and our executive director came running in the office saying, you know, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, we got a problem. We got a problem. So what's the problem? She said there was mold in the basement there's mold in the basement. She's like, yes, what do you want to do about it? I said, well, go fix it and don't come back in the office. (laughs) But it speaks to everything goes to the chairman's office. And you're trying to run a building with, what is it, a thousand employees at FERC? I mean, you guys have a lot of employees. Close to 1,500, yeah. 1,500, right. And you're coming in new and and you're the boss, right? Yeah, it was, uh, there were some interesting periods that I can look back on now that were kind of humorous when, you know, uh, you, you've gotten to know Palson. You know, Palson's a big personality, and I tend to think of myself as a people person. And so when we came to the commission, like I think on like our second week on the job, Rob and I bought a bunch of coffee and set up in the lobby thinking that we would greet people as they were coming in to work. And people were running from us. <laughs> not only did they not want to meet us, they were just running away from us. And it, it was in that moment it hit me that there was a cultural difference to Capitol Hill and the commission as well, just in terms of people's personalities and maybe they're more introverted and cerebral by nature. And so, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was a transition in every way. And then to become chairman or a commissioner, you know, I had to identify staff. But suddenly, as you mentioned, everything goes through the chairman's office. I had to put together a staff on the spot to administer and oversee the entire commission. And I'm very, very grateful for the team that I put together. And I actually got a lot of help from a gentleman named Stephen Wellner, who had been chief of staff at the commission under Cheryl LaFleur when she was serving as acting chair for that long stretch of 2017. And Stephen was great. He had an understanding of who in the building would be a good fit for me who would understand my positions on issues and guide me through the agency. And here I am three years later, and I have largely the same core team that he helped me assemble when I first came in the door. And just that act was a highly consequential one as I now look back on it. Oh, yeah. You realize pretty quickly you can't do it alone, right? You need that team to get things done. No question. No question. That's been one of the great things about being at the commission is not just my own immediate team, but staff throughout the commission here in DC and in our regional offices, really just some of the most talented people in our society. And it's been an honor to work with them. You mentioned the mystery and intrigue and the unusual nature of how the commission has been working over the past few years with Chairman McIntyre being sick and ultimately passing away and Powelson's departure and Commissioner LaFleur's departure. Looking back on it, how do you think you've done given all of this transition that kind of continues to churn? And if you can, can you put a finger on what dynamics are underlying all these changes? So I'll take the second part of your question first. There's no dynamic. When you look at the circumstances 
for each of my colleagues' departures. Obviously, Chairman McIntyre, just an absolutely tragic and sad situation. Again, this wasn't just someone who was my chairman, who was my colleague. He was my dear friend and in many ways was a mentor to me. And so dealing with his passing from a professional and personal sense was very difficult. I love Rob Paulson. I thoroughly enjoyed the time we spent together on the commission, but understand that he got a great opportunity in Philadelphia. I don't know what the draw of Philadelphia is, but he really wanted to be <laughs> in Philadelphia and uh, um, got a, a unique opportunity, a chance to take care of his family. And I don't begrudge him that and miss having him here. But then we've got Commissioner McNamee in his place, who has just been an outstanding colleague and uh, someone that I have truly enjoyed getting to work with. Commissioner LaFleur was so valuable to me personally uh, and professionally, just you know, her institutional knowledge and memory, her long tenure at the commission. But she, she had wanted to stay. She had openly stated that she had wished to continue, but political circumstances, uh, the folks who select the nominees for the party that doesn't control the White House decided to go in a different direction. So in each of those instances, and now with Commissioner McNamee, you know, having a son who's getting ready to go to high school, having to commute from Richmond, wanting to be closer to his family, of course, I can completely understand that. So those four departures, four totally different reasons. So I don't think anyone can read into, you know, some kind of underlying dynamic at the commission that led to those circumstances. In terms of how we've done it's actually remarkable. So uh, my team and I were, were sitting back the other day and just recounting everything that we've done in the last three years. And, you know, in any other tenure, just getting order 841 done on battery storage and the various compliance orders, and then moving forward with, you know, on DER, just that in and of itself would have been the showcase item of uh, chairmanship. You add to that, you know, we had this log jam on critical energy projects. We had a 2-2 commission, and I really credit Commissioner LaFleur and Commissioner McNamee for, you know, and perhaps maybe some of my Senate negotiating skills for breaking that log jam and streamlining our LNG export application review process and approval process. That was a significant undertaking. And again, I think that in and of itself might have been the showcase accomplishment of one's tenure. Our notice of proposed rulemaking, modernizing PERPA, the work we've done there, that in and of itself could be a showcase item. Obviously, and I'm sure we will discuss it here shortly, tackling these complex questions on how to ensure that markets work as they should and to protect competition, which has a real impact on consumers across the nation. These are monumental issues that we've been working through. Working to ensure the right kind of incentives are in place to encourage the transmission we need for the grid of tomorrow. Confronting new and evolving cybersecurity threats. Looking into new opportunities like with cloud computing. These are all really, really significant things and we've been able to do them in a challenging and from a 11th floor transition standpoint, volatile environment, bringing us up to the final area where we've all been laser focused these past couple of months. And that's just on navigating this pandemic and providing pandemic relief and just keeping the commission open and functioning. So 
that's my long-winded senatorial way of saying it has been a truly eventful three years, and particularly now navigating the pandemic, every hour, every day is presenting new challenges. And I'm just grateful really for the staff and the team here at the commission for helping me navigate these difficult challenges. It's pretty amazing when you actually put it in those perspectives. I mean, I agree. And then throw on top of it, you know, the, the dynamics we were talking about earlier, Maybe we could drill down a little, maybe on LNG and pipelines a little bit. I, I do want to get into the market issues, obviously, but the LNG and pipeline stuff tends to attract the most, I would say, political noise at the commission. I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but it certainly seems that from you know this outsider's perspective, I mean, the, the market issues tend to generate the most maybe intellectual noise and policy debates and you know, tough things that way. But I mean, nobody's standing up on the street corner protesting for a strong moper. But people are obviously when pipelines are going through their backyards or LNG facilities are coming to their communities. Can you just talk about how you balance sort of the public's investment, if you will, in those decisions into your decision making as a commissioner? Yeah, there's no question the environment around evaluating and approving pipeline applications has become very, very high profile, very, very contentious. And, you know, something that used to be a matter of routine is now extremely controversial. You know, I've talked repeatedly about my support for energy infrastructure and ensuring that we have the infrastructure that we need to power the energy economy. But I get it. Look, I'm also very sensitive to the concerns that project opponents are bringing to the table, particularly you know, on the natural gas side, concerns raised by landowners, I get it. And my door is open and I've met with a number of concerned landowners. And I've been trying my best, working with my colleagues to be committed to kind of better transparency, making sure that, look, it's not the obligation of a landowner to track FERC dockets. We need to do a better job. Project sponsors need to do a better job of communicating with landowners what's happening, what their rights are, what their opportunities for mitigation are. There's also, you know, been not just the communication, you know, we've updated our landowners webpage to better communicate, but in some of the legal limbo that landowners have found themselves in due to our process. So I think prioritizing rehearing requests that raise landowner concerns, creating a new division within our Office of General Counsel to prioritize and expedite these rehearing requests to give landowners the opportunity to take their concerns to court and not be held in administrative limbo at the commission. These are totally things that I get and I sympathize with. And then same thing on the electric transmission side, infrastructure is needed to bring clean power that people want to load centers. So these are all really complicated issues. I get the political attention around them. And I think it's important that the commission do its work on the natural gas side, that we follow the law and our obligations under the Natural Gas Act, but also recognize that these are really, really tough decisions that impact communities, and I'm sensitive to that. On that topic, so there's these acronyms. There's NIMBY, the Not In My Backyard, and my former life as a newspaper reporter, I heard BANANA, which is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. These sort of movements, these just opposition to infrastructure, how does that impact your thought process on decision making? Do you empathize with those arguments? I empathize with them. I sympathize with them. At the end of the day, 
our responsibility is to ensure that we have the infrastructure that we need to power the energy economy. These are very difficult decisions, but you ask anybody that goes through the FERC process, it is not an easy one. It is not a quick one. It is not an inexpensive one. We do a very rigorous analysis. We take safety and environmental considerations very seriously. And so I think, you know, we have a process in place to ensure that the necessary infrastructure is there. But I also have a great deal of sympathy for, you know, communities that, as you expressed, don't want these types of projects developed in their communities. What about operator accountability like after a FERC approval? Have you generally been pleased with how operators have responded and acted? Have you had any challenges there? What's the feedback on the process after the order and how that's going? Yeah, I mean, once you get your FERC certificate, our role doesn't stop there. And I think we do do a good job of holding folks accountable. I do think that we've seen great strides being made in this space. We put the pressure on project sponsors when it comes to things like mitigation, when it comes to abiding by the standards that we lay out in our certificate approvals. And we have our office of enforcement that is there in instances that parties are not complying with the agreements laid out in the certificate orders. And I think we do a pretty good job of overseeing the compliance. And I think for the most part, project sponsors do a very good job of complying. Not all parties are perfect. We have instances, but I think we have processes in place uh, to hold folks accountable. We're mostly focused on PJM here at the GT Power Hour. And as Glenn has often mentioned in these episodes, it wouldn't be a GT Power Hour episode unless we talked about the MOPR. And the order came out in mid-December of last year, and it's pretty much been on everyone's list of discussion. Chairman, let's wide it out a little bit and ask first, what are your views on capacity markets in general? And do you have any preferences? If you look back over the decades that our organized markets have developed, the commission's precedent has allowed each region to tailor its rules and market design to its unique needs. And so uh, I've sometimes kind of heard of it referred to as the approach of allowing a thousand flowers to bloom, if you will. And that's really what we've seen happen. And that's an approach that makes good sense to me. The issues facing the Northeast are very different from the issues facing the Midwest or California or the mid-Atlantic. And so our recent orders, as you mentioned, our orders on capacity market issues in PJM, in MISO, and in ISO New England, reflect a continuing acknowledgement and respect for those regional differences. As for whether I have a preference among the different capacity designs, I think the answer there is no. I have a preference for rules that work. I have a preference for rules that create a level playing field. And I want rules that minimize barriers to entry and that don't tip the scales in favor of one resource type or another, and that really let the markets take care of the rest for consumers. So let's talk about some of the specifics within there. The MOPR order came out, the minimum offer price rule order came out in mid-December to much discussion on both sides. And there has since been an order on 
rehearing and clarification requests that added a few more pieces to that. Talk to us about your thoughts behind that. You know, the IMM, we had Joe Bowering, the independent market monitor, on for an earlier episode, and he has repeatedly said that may may not have been the decisions that he would have made in that situation, but he has applauded the order as logical, consistent, and I forget what his third descriptor there is, but he said basically the order makes sense and is consistent. Talk to us about your thought processes as you went through determining how this should be, this large order, this very impactful order should be finalized. I'm going to be a little bit careful about this just because we have certain implementation and timing issues that are still pending before the commission. So I got to be careful about not venturing into ex parte territory, but I'll I'll speak at a high level. You know, the thought process going into this was that this was in action with the intention of protecting the markets. I'm a big believer in markets and the benefits that markets have provided for both consumers and the environment. And I want these markets to work. PJM came to us and told us loudly and clearly, our capacity market can't continue this way. Not acting is not an option. And so I, I want to get out that out there very quickly and clearly because I think it's important as some of the concern has risen about this. These are hard decisions to make, but when PJM is saying not acting is not an option, I think leadership is tackling these kinds of difficult challenges. One of the big concerns that was raised, obviously, was regarding cost impacts. And I think you guys have done a good job, from what I've heard of your podcast, in breaking down and talking about the various studies on the cost of the MOPR and the cost impact of you know potential FRR scenarios. And look, Different people can make different assumptions, and those assumptions can be challenged. This is why I have been urging very much a wait-and-see approach. Let's take a step back and look at the benefits that organized markets have brought us. Billions in consumer savings, integration of renewables and new technologies. And before we you know, start to move away from what I think has been a very successful construct, let's see how this plays out. Finally, I think one of the things that makes this challenging is much like standard market design, you know, uh, a decade and a half ago, a lot of these fights are playing out not at the commission level, but in the legislative arena. You know, there are state legislatures. We're getting letters from federal legislators regarding this. And I want to be very clear to folks, this was not a political decision. This was not an anti-state decision. This was not an anti-renewables decision, as some have characterized it. I've been very vocal that I'm a big believer in the economic case for renewable energy and that I believe the cost of clean energy has come down to such a degree that it can compete without subsidies. You know, I'll point out, look, Rob Powelson was lauded for his time at the commission, largely because he's so vocally opposed the DOE NOPER. Nobody, I think, would accuse him of being, you know, political in how he handled his job at the commission. He voted for the June 2018 order that found the existing market to be unjust and unreasonable. My dear friend, Kevin McIntyre, I think no one would accuse him of having political motivations in the way that he went about the job. 
he led that June 2018 order. And so uh, I think it's very important to look at this as a question of market functioning and try and take the politics out of it. And that's what I've been trying to do is ignore the political discourse back and forth and focus on really doing the best we can with the challenge that's in front of us to get the solution that best protects these markets. You know, one of the things that strikes me as one of the biggest challenges with an order like the Moper order, whether it was the June one or the December one, is just explaining it to people because it is probably the trickiest, most intertwined area of regulation in terms of trying to put it in terms that people can, I mean, capacity markets in general are tough to explain. And then put on top of that, how a minimum offer price rule can work and what it does to certain resources. It's really it's hard for reporters to grasp it and it's hard for legislators to grasp it. And I think one of the things that's been challenging and maybe at times frustrating about the debate is just, it's very hard to explain. And there are a handful of folks that do understand it, but most of those folks, you know, admittedly have agendas. So how do you think about that as chairman, as the one who gets the calls from the legislators screaming at you or writing the nasty letters or the media calls where you're trying to get a reporter to understand the issue, but you just can't. How do you think about that? How do you work through that? I, I think I just realized very early on that this was not something that could be distilled to a bumper sticker or to a headline and that, you know, I would ignore the noise, focus on the record, focus on the facts, focus on the expertise of the staff here at the commission and, you know, PJM and its stakeholders and the robust record that we had, and just keep my attention there and try and box out the noise around it. I will say, to the great credit uh, of a lot of the reporters that cover this space, there are some very sophisticated reporters who have great and smart and tuned in sources. And there actually have been a number of very thoughtful pieces written that do capture the complexity of the underlying issues that we were addressing. Let me ask you about, you know, there was a line in a FERC order last week. It actually was in the uh, order on the ODEC and direct energy and advanced energy management complaints uh, where, you, where the commission unanimously rejected those complaints. And those complaints were basically you know, designed to create a seasonal capacity market where there would be different capacity obligations depending on the season and you know, ideally accommodate uh, resources that are only capable of producing energy or, or producing more energy during certain times of year. And one of the, the lines in the order that sort of struck me is really you know, kind of interesting, and I'll just quote directly from the order. It said, capacity market design does not become unjust and unreasonable or unduly discriminatory simply because it does not accommodate the business model for certain resources. And it seems like, you know, if you're thinking about sort of a capacity market policy, that's kind of an interesting one and a good one in my mind to, to, to hang your hat on. I'll never forget having a conversation with Bill Hogan, uh, this is maybe about 15, 20 years ago, and he said, you know, sometimes the message that the regulator needs to send is your technology needs to get better. And I kind of read that philosophy in that line from the order. And I mean, many times FERC does get hit, you know, and states get hit, you know, with this idea that we somehow have to go outside the market, you know, to spur on certain resources. And, you know, there was a time in PJM not too long ago, I mean, 2011, where folks were seeking gas plants because we would never build a new natural gas plant in PJM, you know, given the market conditions that, you know, were in place at the time. And, you know, I have a feeling 10 years from now, we'll be saying similarly things about some of the technologies we're hearing today that may 
not be considered economic and maybe looking for this out-of-market support. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Chairman, but it just seemed to me that the commission was sending a pretty important message in that one sentence. Sure. So I got to be careful again here. The rehearing period hasn't closed. So this order still raises ex parte issues. So I'm just going to address it at a very high level, you know, and just kind of lay it out what we did in the order. We basically explained PJM's current capacity performance regime created a reasonable accommodation for seasonal resources. And what we mean by that is, for instance, it allows for seasonal resources to aggregate and it provided a transition period from the old regime. We also emphasize that PJM's ongoing efforts to improve the ability of its capacity market to integrate seasonal resources. And so the bottom line is we found that the complaints failed to show that PJM's capacity market is no longer just and reasonable as applied to these seasonal resources. And I just think it's important to emphasize that the order dismissing those complaints was 4-0 and was bipartisan. Well, I want to take you into the future, and let's just talk big picture here. How far can technology take us? Will there be super algorithms that eventually can create perfect instantaneous dispatch to take into account all the sensitivities on the grid? Will we always need people to address unexpected issues and to have their fingers on the trigger and know when to push the button? (laughs) I think you're asking me to be a futurist, which is (laughs) definitely something that I'd love to hear from futurists and appreciate their perspectives. I am not going to pretend that I have that forward-looking ability, but I've said it time and again to me, you know, I'm a big believer in technology and innovation. I think one of the reasons I've been so supportive of markets is I do feel that markets drive innovation and drive cost discipline. And I think consumers benefit when that occurs. And so my approach to this sort of thing is to basically get out of the way and enable the markets and technologies to flourish. I think that was kind of the underlying motivation for Order 841. And I think I will leave it to the futurists to make the prediction. Technology is certainly not slowing down, but I'd be way out of my element to try and make predictions. Speaking about the future, I'm curious what you see. I mean, you obviously have ticked off a lot of things that you've accomplished already during your tenure at the commission. What do you still hope to get done? I remember your term expires in, is it next summer? Is it a year from now or is it two years? Uh, Yeah, June of 2021. Look, we still got a lot on our plates. I referenced PERPA earlier and we've got an OPA out and a potential final rule there. I mentioned DER and again, that falls in line with my support for technology and for market-driven solutions to enable new technologies to flourish. We've got very important work we're doing on ROE, which again, another item that just simply addressing that in a prior era would have been a signature action that the commission had taken. I mentioned incentives, and we have our incentives rulemaking out there to ensure that we are incenting the right technologies for the future. I announced a few weeks ago that we would be holding a pandemic tech conference in July. I think that the issues that are being posed by this pandemic and the challenges across all sectors, particularly all elements of the energy sector, are going to raise a lot of questions for regulators and for stakeholders. How are we going to respond 
when the economy reopens, when America gets up off the mat at the end of this terribly challenging pandemic. And I'm not saying we're going to have the answers at that July Tech Conference, but I think there's value to having that dialogue so we can figure out what to prepare for as we see the post-pandemic challenges that will most certainly arise. Oil indexing is something that still needs to be addressed, you know, our five-year review there. And then, look, the commission received a petition recently requesting a technical conference to look into a price on carbon. Comet period just closed on that. So we've got to closely review the comments to see the input that we received. But when you get such a diverse array of stakeholders, everyone from NGSA to AWEA, join together and speak with one voice and ask you to take a look at an issue, it's hard not to pay attention there. And in my cursory review uh, of the comments, which we're still looking through, there's a lot of support for starting that conversation and very little opposition to having that conversation. And I think that is certainly something that the commission could look to. Oh, that's going to be a fascinating conversation that's for sure and so many dynamics but it's terrific to see you know your leadership on you know the covid response and if, if you decide to take on the carbon pricing i think that obviously would be something that would be of great interest to, to so many folks we've discussed a lot of the heavy issues now i want to jump into a few fun things chairman i know you don't like to look too much into the future but tell me when do you think and i assume that you are a university of kentucky wildcats fan when will they be back in the championship in March? Well, you said it in March. If there is a season, <laughs> if there is a season, they will be there. I'm good friends with John Calipari. And you want to talk about the challenges that I have faced at the commission with turnover amongst my colleagues. He turns over a brand new roster every single season. I really think the team that he had this past spring had the tournament not been canceled, would have been a real contender. They were clicking on all cylinders. As a result, a number of those players are exploring professional options. So he's reloading again, but he did manage to draw in a transfer from Wake Forest, a senior level center who will bring some veteran leadership and post presence. So I think whenever the season is able to resume, my man Cal is going to have a loaded team. They do every year have a loaded team, and some years they just keep flying along, and it looks like they'll never lose. And in other years, they just don't seem to be able to get it together for the beginning. And I, you know, I understand your point about the transition, and they're always rebuilding and redefining themselves. Uh, but they always find a way in March to make things happen. I was looking it up. The last win was, what, 2012? but they were runners-up in 2014, and they've come close in 15 and 19. And I don't know. I can't think of very many other programs that have shown that much consistency. So you might not be wrong. <laughs> They're in it every year. And, yeah, uh, 2015, you forget, they were 38-0 and 0 before a horrific final five minutes against Wisconsin in the final four. But had they completed that 40-0 run, you know, we'd be talking about potentially the greatest team in college basketball history that year. Talk to us about your sports rivalries with Powell Sinai. I assume, and Lafleur, both of them have shown that they're sports fans as well. Was there a lot of animosity or was there a lot of camaraderie in the building 
during any of the seasons? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the great things about sports. And it's a really unifying thing that can bring people together. It's a great icebreaker. And all my colleagues, you know, uh, Commissioner Glick is a big baseball fan. He's a big football fan, really knows his stuff. And so, you know, having the ability to kind of bond and chat over these things does lead into their professional conversations. It's a great softener. And so I've been pretty vocal that I'm a big Tom Brady devotee and rooted for the Pats. And so that actually brought Cheryl and I together against Commissioner Palson, particularly heading into that Philly special Super Bowl, which we will not speak of uh, any further. But uh, Commissioner Powelson had a lot of fun with that. I limit my Boston fandom to the Patriots and Brady, so I did not revel in the Celtics and Red Sox and Bruins successes the way that Commissioner Fleur did. But she was really like a blast to watch how she handled this stuff. And she really knows her stuff, and we had a lot of fun with it. With Commissioner Powelson in particular, I have taken great joy in seeing the Philadelphia Phillies pay, I forget even the guy's name, but they paid him like 400 something million dollars and the Nats went on to win the World Series without him and now I can't even remember his name um, Bryce Harper. Uh, and, the, and, and the Nats are world who Bryce Harper and I don't even know who that is but the Nats are World Series champions and uh, and so it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun very good speaking trolling, of fun chairman you, you seem to be having a lot of fun in the job you know I just like you know, obviously, we, we talked about your Twitter feed earlier and your Instagram and, you know, the time at the agency. And you've obviously been able to put yourself out there, I think, like no other chairman in the history of the agency. And, you know, as we were joking prior to the podcast, I mean, I, I'm trying to picture like Joe Kelleher, you know, or, or no, let me say Norman Bay comparing, you know, Harry Reid to Mule Piss, which you on Twitter. I mean, are you enjoying the job? Because sure as heck seems like you are. Look. I made a decision very early on in my life when I was coming out of grad school. A lot of my classmates from that era make a lot more money than I do. But, you know, something that was instilled in me early on, I've had some the good fortune of having some great mentors. People have said, if you enjoy what you do for a living, you will never work a day in your life. I have truly enjoyed my public service, my time in the House, my time with the electric cooperatives, my time in the Senate, and certainly my time in the commission. And I can honestly say, even through this difficult time with the pandemic, I don't feel like I'm working. I feel like what we're doing is meaningful. It impacts the public. And I get a lot of gratification out of trying to do the job and serve the public to the best of my abilities. And I do enjoy it. Now, I do have to disagree with you on picturing different chairs and commissioners and how they are. I think this is kind of an artifact of a number of things. One, the advent of social media. You talk to a lot of these old FERC commissioners and chairmen who served in prior generations. There are some great personalities out there. I mean, if anyone who spent five minutes with Pat Wood, unbelievable character and personality. John Wellinghoff, fantastic and colorful figure. I think had social media and other type things been available during their service, they might have had similar fun with it. Commissioner LaFleur, great on social media and has a lot of fun with it. So I think that's a component of it. I think part of it, you know, I think I'm, if not the youngest, one of the youngest chairs ever at the commission. And so maybe my familiarity and comfort level 
with these new technologies and media trends has enabled it a little bit. But then I think also it's the visibility of the commission. There's just no question that the work that the commission is doing has been elevated and its profile has been elevated. And there's just a lot more people paying a lot of attention to the commission. And so I think all those things have come together. I just try and do my job to the best of my ability. And like I said, to me, I don't feel like I work. That's terrific. Yeah, it makes it all the difference in the world when you can show up every day to work and say that. I definitely agree that the profile of the commission has increased. And as we all know, with increased image and and profile always comes backlash and and criticism. Are, Are there criticisms that bother you? Are there depictions of your administration that you take umbrage with? Really, the only one is this notion that the commission has become politicized. And it just because, again, I think... There are so many layers of accountability around our work that it's an unfortunate characterization. First and foremost, we're accountable to the staff. And the staff here, you know, are the consummate professionals. They're technical experts and engineers and lawyers and environmental analysts. And all of the work that ultimately works its way up to the 11th floor, while it is certainly shaped by the 11th floor, has to go through the staffs. And so I don't believe that staff's work is political and simply shaping it on the 11th floor, I think staff is there to ensure it doesn't become political. We're accountable to each other, to our colleagues. Our colleagues can vote differently. They can write separately and express their opinions. And I think that having a bipartisan commission, having a diverse array of multi-member commission insulates you against politicization. Most significantly, we're accountable to the courts. Our decisions have got to withstand legal scrutiny. And if we were making nakedly political decisions, then they would not withstand those legal tests. We're accountable to Congress. The House and the Senate both have significant oversight and can call us up and hold our feet to the fire, and we've got to be prepared for that. And we're accountable to the press. The press writes about the commission and writes about its actions. And so I think with all those layers of accountability, the American people can have confidence that while they may not agree with every decision that comes out of the commission, we are truly doing what we think is in the public's interest. That's just the one thing I chafe at, this idea that the commission has become political. I'm self-aware enough to know that my personality, my background may feed into this. Um, Maybe that's why I chafe at it a little bit more than I should. But I want your listeners to rest assured that even though they may not agree with all the decisions that I am making, that my colleagues and I together are making, it's coming from a place of what we think is in the legally justifiable public interest and not from a place of politics. Yeah, maybe why they see a polarization on the commission is because they know where, you know, your background and they know Commissioner Blick's background and, you know, they see a lot of public disagreements between the two of you. Could you just maybe comment on the relationship between the two of you? Because, you know, you you, you work through a lot of issues together and a lot of times it comes off at public meetings that there's tension there. there tension there? No, we actually get along really well. And look, he's doing his job. I think in instances where he disagrees with the decision that a majority in the commission makes, 
he's doing his part to be critical of those decisions. And his dissents, his arguments, I think, make the order stronger because we have to account for the arguments that he is making in our orders. And we often respond to his dissents, you know, in the ultimate orders. And so I think the process works the way it's supposed to. I think he's playing an important role. And on a personal level, we get along very well. We've also accomplished some pretty major things together. You know, I think in the same month that I partnered with Commissioner LaFleur and McNamee to get the deal on our LNG project approvals, I sided with LaFleur and Glick on 841, which Commissioner McNamee dissented against. And I think that's a major accomplishment. And I think uh, Commissioner Glick has jokingly referred to me as the father of 841. And it's something I'm very proud of. And it's something that he and I did together. And I think similarly on DER, I'd look to work closely with him. And so I think because of the spotlight on the commission, because it's an easier narrative to say that the commission is politicized, people focus more on our disagreements. They focus on his colorful dissents or my response to his dissents. But it really distorts, you know, that we've gotten a lot of things accomplished together. Pipeline security is another one, you know, that he and I uh, went out on together and said that we had real concerns about the focus and our vulnerability when it comes to the safety and security of our pipelines. And I think we've seen real progress in that area. And because we approached it together, we were able to move TSA. And so I think there's a lot of good stuff we've been doing together. But you mentioned earlier, because of you know my ties to McConnell, Glick's ties to you know, Senator Cantwell and Energy Democrats, it is not new that U.S. senators try and influence the commission. I was actually joking around with a friend of mine the other day that you know when I was in the Senate, the first time I ever saw FERC, I was responsible for covering the commission and advising Senator McConnell, the first time I ever saw FERC on A1 of a major newspaper, there was an A1 Wall Street Journal story talking about Harry Reid's influence over the commission and how he has, was single-handedly preventing John Norris or Cheryl LaFleur from becoming chairman and was pushing for Norman Bay coming off Wellinghoff. And so, you know, this was back in 2013. These types of things have been going on forever with the commission. I think it's just, you know, the spotlight on the commission is shining a bright light on something that has always been there. That's very insightful. I wanted to follow up on that real fast. Chairman, I'm sure there have been some headlines that you have said, I wish I had had some input on that. If you could create your perfect headline that would run in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, what would that be? I think it's hard. Um, as we've been talking throughout this conversation, these matters are complicated. They're not easily distilled into headlines or bumper stickers or talking points. And We've covered a lot of ground over the last three years. So if the headline were, you know, at the end of my tenure, Chatterjee hopes he did it right or, you know, <laughs> uh, had a meaningful chairmanship, I think that would suit me just fine. Sometimes that's all you can hope for. Well, yeah, let's transition as we're coming into the home stretch here. As you know, Chairman, from your familiarity with our podcast, we've got a couple of things that we absolutely hit at the end. And one of the most important is two minutes of advice. So the rules are the same as always. You've got two minutes with anyone anywhere to provide some feedback or insight. Who are you going with? So for me, I think particularly as we confront the stress and anxiety and challenges that are being brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic, and particularly coming off Memorial Day, a day of reflection, the advice that I want to give to folks in this difficult time is to be 
thankful and to be grateful for all that we have in our lives. Hard to see through that sometimes when there is so much stress and anxiety. But I think back to something my father told me when I was a young kid. I was complaining to him about something and he just told me, stop. He said, Neil, you have no idea how lucky you have it. He said, life is so good in this country that we wake up every morning with an expectation of happiness. And that when we're not happy, we're looking for someone to blame for that lack of happiness. My father spent more than half of his life in abject third world poverty. He said, he did not, as a kid, have an expectation of happiness. He just lived. And ever since that moment where he kind of rattled my cage, I've really tried to be appreciative of all the wonderful things that this country has offered me, offered my friends, offered my families, offered the public. And so in this difficult time, my advice is take a moment and reflect on all the great things that this country has provided and what you have in your life. And that will help us collectively get through this really complex challenge. That reminds me of what the University of Michigan football coach Jim Harbaugh always says, who's got it better than us? Nobody. I've always thought that was a pretty catchy little statement that he does there. Glenn, any parting thoughts from you? Uh, yeah, maybe I'll take 30 seconds and give some advice to the chairman since I know I have a captive audience here, but we touched it on the last show and I just want to give another shout out to the folks who are out in the PJM control room. We're talking about the operators out there who have been sequestered since April 11th doing 12-hour shifts, seven days a week, not seeing their families except for on Zoom calls. We understand they're getting all their food brought in. They have exercise equipment and cots on site. They're really sacrificing a lot right now to keep our lights on. And my understanding is similar things are going on in New York and New England and maybe some other places around the industry. So, you know, my advice to the chairman here is when you get a chance, do what you can to honor these folks that are probably not getting the recognition that other folks are getting right now. But there's some terrific sacrifices going on in these control rooms of these RTOs right now that really deserve to be recognized when this is all said and done. Absolutely. They're heroes and patriots. We didn't get a chance to discuss it, but I noticed on your Twitter feed, Chairman, that you have some great messages of support from the Master Distiller at Four Roses Distillery. And I saw Shane Battier, which is a very nice note to extend an olive branch over to the state of North Carolina for Shane Battier's basketball career at Duke. So you've had a couple of nice comments on your Twitter feed thanking the utility workers and FERC staff in general. Well, final part that we do is we call this the GT Power Hour, but as any regular listener will know we do our darndest to get you out of here before the hour. We had a lot to talk about today with the chairman, so I'm not sure how close we're going to get, but it looks like we'll be somewhere in the area of 55 or perhaps right around an hour. So thank you all again for being here. Chairman, it has been a really awesome hour to sit down with you. Thank you again for taking the time out of your schedule to do this. We really appreciate it. Anything that you would like to wrap up with? Uh, no, like I said, I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be on here. I appreciate you guys doing a podcast like this to give folks the opportunity to kind of dig deeper into some of these really challenging issues. It's a great forum. I don't think I will run to this one, but I look <laughs> forward to running to the next one. We really appreciate that. Thank you again, as always. And our sign-off that we have been 
negligent in recent months, but we're going back to it now is be excellent to each other. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.